Welcome, one and all, to a live, special live recording of Vigor Please, a hateful voyage through the Delta Quadrant. My name is Joseph. Uh, my name is Peter, and I'm still not comfortable talking about Star Trek Voyager <laughs> looking you in the eye. <laughs> I mean, it's almost been a year since we actually got together and did something in person like this. I know, uh, that's why it's so uncomfortable. I'm going to look in this corner of the room, and you can look in that corner, <laughs> and, and our eyes cannot meet. Otherwise, this is going to kill my erection. <laughs> Speaking of your erection, tell me more about Dragon Con. Oh boy, I'll tell you what I can uh, remember, which is not too much. It's a lot of drinking. Um, good time this year. I was a little disappointed with the Star Trek content, and I'll, I'll focus on that since you know it's a Star Trek podcast, theoretically. <laughs> uh, let's see. I went to the Miss Star Trek Universe pageant. Okay. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, yeah, I didn't either, and I would say I will not go back to that. <laughs> Particular, I'll tell you the stand-up. So it's Garrett Wang who runs Trek Track for Dragon Con, right? Right. And you had you had said last year was actually, he does a great job. Yeah, yeah. He is a great presenter, and he seems like he is a lot of fun to hang out with. I'm just saying that this specific beauty pageant contest, whatever it was, uh, was rough. There was one contestant in particular who was awesome. That was like this dead ringer for Deanna Troy. Um, she came out in like the blue flowy Deanna Troy dress. Okay, which yeah, was yeah. Great. And then they had like this talent portion, right? And there are some really bad talent portions, like people playing the guitar and like some really cringy stand-up comedy and uh, a weird dance number. <laughs> and then I see this redhead in this like dark gold leotard coming out. I'm like, I don't recognize this. And this is a very attractive one. And then I see the Deanna Troy Dendringer come out in a leotard. And I'm like, dude. And they start doing the aerobics, like stretch <laughs> workout thing from like when Deanna's falling in love. Like, you know, the... Yeah, yeah. The, the thing yeah. when she and the Dr. Crusher are talking about boys. Yeah. Yeah. And then they go in like this huge dance number. And it is awesome. And everything is good in it. I think it was Material Girl they end up playing the, the song too, and in the end, uh, the um, the Crusher dumps a box full of something on Troy, and it's triples, and it's really good. Anyway, so it's it's really awesome. Uh, and then Garrett Wang's like, "That was a really good callback to to what was that episode?" And I'm like, oh, "That's Devani Rawls episode, who we talk about pretty frequently when we're talking about crazy beta zets, right?" Yeah, and and rape, really. <laughs> He's a bad one. <laughs> but Garrett's like, what episode is that? And it's like Stunlock. And it's the fucking price. And nobody in this whole ballroom full of Trek fans can say the price. They just all know the episode. They just forget the title. And he's like, and you guys call yourself a bunch of Star Trek fans. And man, that just burned me the whole fucking weekend. I'm like, I got a Star Trek podcast. I, I know next gen like the back of my hand. And that moment, I mean, that could have been someone's life on the line. Like... <laughs> Name the episode where Deanna Troy is. Life would have been snuffed out because you couldn't remember that. Oh, yeah, with the Ferengi jabronis and the London Voyager Which episode. Which is why fucking... we talked about it, too. Because of fucking <laughs> false prophets. Uh, uh, so that was uh, that was a, a moment in Trek. Um, I went to the Discovery panel. There wasn't really good, like, classic Trek panels. Like, uh, George... <laughs> George Takai? Takai, yes, Takai. <laughs> There must have been some, uh, <laughs> some I don't know, some static in the room we're both talking. Uh, so he was there. Shatner was there. But I didn't want to go anywhere near those because I knew that there was going to be like super duper fucking long lines. And 
right. Dragon Con this year was 5,000 more people than last year. It was from 80,000 to 85,000. And you could feel that five extra thousand people. Uh, but there wasn't like good, like old Voyager dudes. Uh, Garrett Wang had a Q&A session, but it was early night. Was drunk, so I didn't go there. <laughs> um, but I went to the Star Trek Discovery panel. I got in a little late. And uh, it was Detweiler, who's like the cyborg or like half robot face lady mm-hmm. who got her face blown up on the Shenzhen. Uh, the dude who played Spock, Anson Mount, which was Pike. The Klingon high counselor that I can never remember her name. Right, right. Morel. And then uh, fucking Ash Tyler was there, who I'm so sick of him. <laughs> His character. I'm the only the only person you named in that that I would give any fucks about whatsoever is Anson Mount. Anson Mount, which yeah. is why I was there for Anson Mount. And man, I come into the back of this ballroom, and it's a big ballroom, right? And they've mm-hmm. got maybe a, a quarter of this thing seated. It was shocking to walk into a place that was built for such high capacity and see such a bad turnout on this thing. And all you need to do is look at Anson Mount's face and you could see exactly what you're getting into. And I come in and he's got like his hand in his head and he's just looking there like staring off into the distance. And some neckbeard's like, because you go to these big panels and people can't just ask straightforward questions. They want to really hit these these touching, thoughtful questions. And he's like, you know, uh, do you, you know, what do you... Uh, owe more to Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so. And he's like, what? Uh, Mr. So-and-so? I, I, I don't know who that is. Well, the the choir... T- well, I wasn't in oh. choir. So it's like this dude gets caught in this little lovey-dovey, you know, oh, I know so much about you trap where he starts spouting off false info. And normally you see, like, actors let people down, like, well, you know, I don't know who that... And he just slams a book. And he's like, I have no idea who that is. I was never in choir. I think you've got your information wrong. It was very interesting to see someone uh, at a Trek panel be that abrupt. But some pretty good info did come out of that. The question I wanted to ask when I got up there and someone stole it before I could get in was basically like, they didn't flesh any of the characters out until season two. Like the bridge crew, I couldn't even tell you what the name was. They literally did a roll call on the bridge. Yeah, just be like, by the way, that's yeah, who's this guy? That's Detweiler, and I still couldn't tell you what their names are. Who's the robot lady? I don't don't know. (laughs) You don't get to know who... Well, I'll spare you the spoilers. Uh, But I went to get up there, and it's like, hey, listen, did you guys have any idea of what these characters were that you were supposed to be portraying? Did you have the information that we didn't get until season two? And someone else asked a, a question that pretty much covered that same ground, and the answer was no. Like, we found out right about the same time you found out. I'm like, how do you... How in the Star Trek fandom world and the Star Trek production world are you like, hey, you're going to be part of the bridge crew and we have no backstory for you whatsoever? Kurtzman, man, like when you put in charge people who don't give a fuck about Star Trek or what makes Star Trek good, this is the kind of thing that you get. Like for all the shit that we we, we give the writers and producers of the very show that this show is about, they obviously cared about the franchise you know, in terms of like its continuity and its history. And of course they did. Right. Cause Rick Berman has built this whole, you know, multi-show empire. It yep. was a the, shared space. And, and so the, the highest ups took it seriously. So everyone they hired took it seriously. All these people came up through next gen, you know, that's where they, you know, got their start. Like Jerry Taylor got her start as a worker there. So did Ron Moore. So did all these guys were so steeped in the Trek, uh, you know, lore, they treated it with the utmost seriousness. And Alex Kurtzman is not part of that. He's, you know, the bad robot guy. You know, J.J. Abrams 
didn't care at all about Star He wanted to make Star Wars movies, which ultimately, obviously, he ended up doing. And then what happened? Well, the, the, the good reboot movie was done by who? Simon Pegg wrote it. And then the guy from The Fast and the Furious, who apparently really loved Star Trek, you know, directed it. Well, we'll have to disagree. I, I liked all the J.J. movies. Joe doesn't. You're a contemptible human being, and I hate you. But to your point, they're touching characters that are already fleshed out. You don't need to tell these people's backstories because you already know them. Right. Now it's... you start getting into new uncharted territories like Discovery, it becomes a different uh, was a different thing. The question I did get to ask them, though, was about a, a, a something of great importance to you and I, and that's uh, I'd like to hear some stories about getting to work with... Uh, Jonathan Frakes. Man, they all lit the fuck up, man. Tell, <laughs> oh, like, nice! The the cult of Frakes is alive and well, and it lives somewhere in the Discovery cast. Like, everybody's like... I think the, the first answer to that was Anson Mount saying, well, that guy does not get off the fucking set. <laughs> and there have been no swearing in this panel at all, so him dropping that, and everybody just started laughing about, like, how much energy he brings into the set from the just him saying action, like, people being, like, jolted out of their seat and, and that he really gets Trek and gets what these people are trying to put into their characters and motivates. Um, and you can see that in the episode he directed. That, uh, according to Anson Mount, he doesn't take a lunch. He just meditates through lunch. And that, <laughs> of course he does. He's this Greek god. He's like, I need no food. I need no sustenance. I must absorb the prayers of my followers, <laughs> of the devoted. Uh, he said that. Frakes likes to linger on shots, so they'll finish their lines, and he just keeps the cameras rolling. He said that gets, like, real weird, because they'll just be looking at each other, and then you'll start hearing this voice coming off from sorry, like, good. <laughs> yes. And we're living in the scene, and we're looking, and we're staring, and it's just like, uh, we're ready to finish this up, and he just hold them there because he wanted that extra footage to play with and just a lot of other cool fun stuff like that um so those panels are always fun to go to and then uh the last panel i was able to hit was uh for the people versus star trek voyager which we've talked about a couple of times uh they run a live podcast at dragon con i think this was their second time so uh joe's talked with those guys on twitter a little bit we've mentioned them on the podcast a few times i've listened to one or somewhere between two or three episodes I, again i try not to listen to too many other star trek podcasts because you know what infecting what we do here yeah, like uh, that subconscious plagiarism can yes. happen I'm, I'm the same way i try not to listen too much but i went to this one they were doing uh scorpion part two and it was a good time man they keep the whole courtroom shtick uh there for the performance the magic of all of it is that they somehow and i i can't wrap my mind around how a couple of white guys can do a star trek <laughs> podcast in under an hour that's impossible it, I thought so, too. I mean, there was clearly some witchcraft or something going on, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And <laughs> it's funny sitting there and having to keep your mouth shut on things. You're like, I know all about this. <laughs> I read the memory alpha page. I read the memory beta page. <laughs> notes. <laughs> I forget. We like Scorpion 2 more than Scorpion, but we hated Scorpion. And we hated Scorpion 1. So like Scorpion, Scorpion 2 were like, fine. Scorpion know. 2, the deed had already been done. The body was already on the floor. Like, right. I'm not going to fault him for trying to cut it up and flush it down the toilet. <laughs> like, what are you going to There's a dead body in the table. You got to feed it to the pigs, of course. Uh, they really, really liked it. Uh, not as much as Scorpion 1, so I don't 
No. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. the interesting thing about uh, Star Trek Voyager podcast is you draw your own conclusions and sometimes they're incorrect and terrible. But <laughs> hey, whatever, they're fine. They're fine. You should listen to them. You know, after us, whatever. But it was good. They're, they're a good group of guys. So I enjoyed interacting with them. It was a good uh, Dragon Con. They're always good Dragon Cons. I highly recommend going. I highly recommend getting a Star Trek outfit and wandering around and trying to engage other people in bullshit bridge conversations <laughs> and seeing who it's going to stick with. That's 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 the fun of being there, especially after you get liquored up enough to to have absolutely no barriers. But I have one incredibly important uh, Peter, you know, vacation related note. And that is, uh, do you have any stories of embarrassingly bringing up that you have a Star Trek podcast and it went horribly awry? Uh, I think the only person I really told about my Star Trek, um, yeah, there was a hot tub incident, I think. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I was real drunk and I, no comment. <laughs> Other than that, I, I went up and I, you know, again, I, I talked to the guys from uh, People Versus and shook their hand. I was like, hey, that's cool. I, it's a Star Trek Poyager podcast out there I like to listen to. That's a very hard feat to accomplish. So, okay, that's that's where that one ended. No, uh, in, in, a, in a sea of what I say, 58,000 nerds. It's not hard to find other people with podcasts. I was a, a little fish in a very big pond. Well, you know what? Where is this little fish swimming to today, Peter? We're going to swim to Season 4, Episode 8, leading into Season 4, Episode 9, Year of Hell, Parts 1 and 2. So, we have decided to tackle these together, because I have long since maintained, and I feel like this was correct, that these episodes are essentially uh, a movie. Like, they're 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 not like a two-parter, like a uh, best, best of both worlds, where it's like season ending, season premiere, where there's like a big... Uh, you know, narrative break or cliffhanger. Let's it's, talk about that for a second. Yeah. How the fuck do you not use this as a series finale? The 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 terrible series finales and some of these so-called cliffhangers that we've seen, uh, nowhere near this. Do you think this could have worked as a series finale? Like a season finale? A season finale. Yeah, like a season four end? Yeah. Um, I'm glad they didn't because it would be too much like best of both worlds if they did that oh they're all in peril and i think there's a key narrative weakness in this episode that would deflate it as a season finale because i think you want your season finales when they're cliffhangers to have stakes and while you know spoiler this episode is very good i would say that it's perfectly encapsulates the problem of Voyager and that one of Voyager's best episodes is ultimately an episode with no stakes whatsoever. It is the ultimate bottle episode. Yeah. I've, I, we got a good uh, title we're working on for this. One. Yeah, we, we do. And it's perfect because Vo- the main drag on Voyager as a show is what? Everything's a bottle episode. It's, it's status quo antebellum at the end of every episode. And here we are at a really just magnum opus, great Trek story, sci-fi story, well-told, well-acted, great effects, great details, and what fucking happens at the end? Reset switch. Hit the reset button. Like, even Voyager's best episode can't get away from hitting the reset button. And because of the fact that you do that, I'm really glad they didn't do a, a season finale, season premiere situation with this i think it's more palpable 
as just like this thing that happened in the middle of one of the seasons and it's a cool story on one hand i want to say you're right on the other hand i remember that they began season two with the fucking 37s (laughs) this would have been better than that when you're starting things with the goddamn 37s uh there is no quality control and this would have been a great season uh finale and opener but we do get this as a mid-season cliffhanger and i agree that this is a very cinematic experience this is unlike anything that we have seen in voyager up to this point i think it is is definitely better watched just one after another Watching it as like sequential up ep- in sequential episodes, and I remember this from the last time I watched it, and like taking that away from it, like ten years ago, I'm like, oh, that really works as a like two forty as a movie, an hour and a half movie. Yeah. And when you watch them together, it's structured that way because you see so little of the villain until the second part. And you don't really understand what's really going on with him until the second part, but you watch them together, and it makes kind of like it it flows into the right narrative spot. Right. And really, the second part literally starts right after the first. I mean, Absolutely. There's yeah. no gap. So uh, so we start this off with something we've not been treated to in a long time, and that is a matte painting of a futuristic city of tomorrow. Oh, takes you back. I like it. There's a little train running. Did you see the little train? I forget my wife's comment was, but she was very struck. She's like, what? What is this Disneyland drawing? And I said, that's that's exactly what is it. It's, it's some... Walt Disney-esque 50s utopia city of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't get a, a nice view of that for very long because uh, this uh, futuristic city we cut up to orbit. And you know what? The CG is the same kind of crappy CG that we've come to know out of Voyager. And yet none of it really gets in the way of the enjoyability of anything that happens. Like there's this big ass... Stevie called it a Mass Effect graphics test. Yes, <laughs> yes. This this super weapon looks like the Citadel. Yeah, once the Reapers are coming and the thing like closes, closes up. up. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. It looks like like a a prototype graphics test. Like Bioware was like trying to figure out how this thing would look, and that's what it looks like. That is exactly what it looks like, and it shoots a Death Star laser, uh, which does not blow up the entire planets because there's not five ships in a starburst <laughs> like bullshit species a space mutus space me oh god what were they calling them on uh well whatever i'm not gonna again this is why i can't watch other podcasts because it, it'll contaminate me but they, they had something very timeline yeah i got busted out of that too i asked a question at the end about uh if uh janeway was right and you know endangering the entire life of the alpha quadrant so she can get her 140 people home you know, and, and give the Borg a fucking pass, which we harped about for an hour and a half. Two hours, yeah. Two hours. And in the process, I had to mention Species 8-4. <laughs> and the fucking moderator corrected me, and I'm like, I don't respect this species or their bad CGI. We will call them Space Mewtwo's. I can't remember what their name um, So anyways, this thing hits it with the, with the, you know, the old Care Bear stare. And uh, the planet, they zoom out, the, the city disappears. What I always like when they have like planets that either get like super borged up or all life disappears is like the atmosphere changes, like and all the smog and shitty overcast disappears. And you've got this beautiful world that is untouched by any sort of uh, sentient hand. And uh, yeah, that whole culture and everything else is gone because this is the Krenum. And the Krenum are Time Lords, essentially. 
Yeah, they have a, a mastery of, you know, of chromaton technology. I appreciated the complete lack of any reference of fucking, and I quote, time crystals as we were beat over the head with <laughs> several times in Discovery Season 2. Uh, but this this race does have uh, the power of time on their side. And the first shot we see on the ship, of course, is of our key guest star in this episode, the immortal Kirkwood Smith, who is playing the captain of this of this ship, who's we'll find out his name later is Anorex. Uh, I like to call him Space Boddicker. Uh, Clarence Boddicker <laughs> is a villain of all ages and in all generations. <laughs> it's, it, it's it. So first of all, Kirkwood Smith. Uh, he has looked uh, middle-aged for like 40 years. Uh, you know, like 10 years prior is when he played Clarence Boddicker. Like 10 years to the day. It was, was 1997, 1998, and that's when Robocop came out in 1987. And he looks almost exactly the same. Yeah. It's, it's just like that premature balding and that like really severe facial. Those like piercing blue eyes. Yeah, and that, that voice. It's just... Can you fly, Bobby? <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, there's no women on his ship, so he cannot tell any bitches to leave. And wow, did you, you know, that? I didn't notice that. That's <laughs> 200 years of sausage party. <laughs> but uh, Kirkwood Smith is a actor of uh, unique intensity. And, you know, he gets cast in the roles where he can use that. He's uh, probably the most famous, probably just playing Red on, on that 70s show. But, you know, where he's like the stern father figure who has, you know, good comedic timing with it. But that's like his whole shtick, right? That he's kind of an asshole. And for this role, you know, he's essentially a scientist that created a time weapon and everything's gone out of control. And we'll learn, obviously, a lot about that as the episode goes on exactly what and so on. Uh, The way he is effortlessly able to deliver cheesy time dialogue like time science dialogue and make you think like it's completely serious belays his strength as an actor. Cause there's this whole monologue he goes on as he's going through the bridge in this first scene about time being a fickle mistress and that clearly destroying this one colony of this civilization wasn't enough for a restoration of whatever he's attempting to do. And he's, yeah, he has to erase their entire uh, uh, civilization from time. And he lays it down in a way of like, this dude is serious and whatever he's doing, I buy it. And it brings you in immediately. And I don't want to ask questions. Yeah. And th- that's that's the magic of this. Is At its core, this is a time travel episode that does not feel like a time travel episode. Yes. And that all of the holes we punch in everything else, that there is this perfect juggling act, that there is a clear concerned effort on the behalf of this entire ship of scientists who have been doing this for, as we'll find out, over 200 years that they are putting real work into calculations and running tests and models that, that, that they're out there pounding out the details. So there is, there is signaling that, you know, work is happening to accomplish these things. And the guy who's responsible for all of it can, like you said, deliver these lines in a way that you don't question, you don't sweat the details. And if I wanted to sit here and start punching holes and like, what ifs, like I could, but I have zero motivation to, uh, that's that's the first feat that he pulls off is that he makes time travel, even time manipulation. It's like it's not really about time travel right. so much as manipulating the space time continuum, which is different. Yeah, 
And they never explain to you the hows, and you don't care. That whoever these Kremen are, whoever Anorex is, he figured it out and he knows how to do it. Yeah. And it's never really important to the story as to how that happened. What is important is the way they portray how he interacts with space-time and how, A, it's really well thought out about how any one small change creates a ripple effect of changes, making calculation of what one change will do extraordinarily complex and difficult. And then, B, that he's kind of time-crazy and that he sees it as this living organism that has something out for him. Yeah. Specifically. And because of the complexity and... and There's definitely... There's some space madness going there. And it just works so well. And if I have a complaint, it's that they don't do enough with him. There's like only four scenes that Kirkwood Smith is actually in. Well, those four scenes he uses to completely outact the shit. (laughs) He does. Uh, Easily. My wife's commentary through this whole thing is that can he just be a part of this show now? <laughs> can he just replace that Kim guy with <laughs> who just stands in the back? He makes all the other actors look so terrible. And it's like, yeah, I, I see it. Like this guy brings a gravity in that I think the others really struggle to keep up with. And like you said, I mean, they're giving him some preposterous shit to say. And I think, and I, I, I don't know if it's the, the script was well-written in this case that, the time travel works and I don't want to question it or if that he's able to just read the phone book and you're like, yeah, like his power with this is it's just, it's matter of fact. Yeah. It's, it's not casual. It's just, this is how it is. And we're going to talk about it this way and we're going to move forward. And you're just like, yeah, I buy it. Cool. It's, it, it couldn't have been more obvious to me, the disparity in acting talent is when he's in the same scene with Robert Beltran, <laughs> but we'll get to that. For now, though, uh, we go back to Voyager and they are. Oh, wait, wait. So the the big cliffhanger on this uh, before credit scene is that uh, things went well. But there's one piece still out of place in this timeline he's trying to recreate by way of some colony. That colony is not present. So it's we're going back to the drawing board. Meanwhile, on Voyager, we have the christening of a very important new set uh, the Astrometrics Lab, which we had seen over the last few episodes that Harry and uh, Summit of Nine were actually building. And here it is now built. And there's a quick bit of techno babble. The way they explain how this works is a fusion of Borg and Federation technology allows I'm them. I'm doing the uh, hand jerk off yeah, motion over here. Allows them to like read the radiation of all of the stars to be able to like triangulate their position better. And it's just way better sensor tech, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Here's a technobabble explanation as to why now we have super, you know, space mapping science. Which, how boring. (laughs) If there's one thing I would have never said, hey, you know what's not good enough in the Federation technology tree is their stellar cartography. Like, I think if there's one thing a spacefaring empire like the Federation and Starfleet had down packed, it's that's where that planet is. That's where I want to go. That's how we get there. I, I didn't think we need to have a Borg overhaul. I'd maybe, you know, get some Borg phasers or a Borg <laughs> trans warp drive, which we tried to get working for all of half of the episode. But I mean, it's also a very Federation thing to work on. They're scientists, you know, they're, they're not warlike. They want to be able to perceive things better, record data, experiment. Go back to trans warp. You're going to yeah. get better results. Okay. <laughs> True. But the real thing being christened in this scene 
is Janeway's new haircut. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, I'm going to say... You get two words. Fantastic. What? Yes. Distractingly bad. <laughs> this fucking haircut is so terrible, it pulls me out of every scene. We've established in Star Trek that the way you tell something that that there's duress or someone has been tortured or is having a bad day is by how bad their hair looks and this is the year of hell starting today because her hair looks like hell her hair by the end once they start getting roughed up and she's getting like knocked around in like firefights it it looks like gary Busey's hair (laughs) they have scalped gary Busey and they put it on kate mulgrew and they're punishing i like it i like it I I think that like first of all get used to it. It's her haircut for the rest I of the know, fucking series. My wife asked me. They said what she said. What the hell is wrong with her hair? And I said I don't know. That's the first time I've ever looked at it. And she said, was seven of nine like not hot enough that they had to start going around and like making everybody else look worse to really make her look <laughs> better somehow? And I said maybe maybe this is why Kate Mulgrew was like so shitty with Jerry. <laughs> They gave her that fucking haircut. I think it's better than the fucking extensions and the super bun and all that stuff. Like cutting it short. Like she looked good with short hair. That remember that one episode when yeah. like Kacho, what Kacho, you call it a lesbian Kacho chic? Was a, yeah, the lesbian chic. Like well, this they, isn't lesbian chic. This is Gary Busey. <laughs> I think I I think is reminiscent of lesbian this, chic. This it's it's gym teacher chic is what it this is. This haircut should have been deployed on uh, what was the space jungle brainwashing episode with the predator people oh yeah yeah because gary Busey and predator 2 got to interact with him and i think that would have been a good that would have been a good callback uh, you would have kept you know kept silentist footfalls and turned his trembles into rages if <laughs> you're gonna punch more me. you're gonna stab more me more examples of how bad your opinion is, is in addition to this terrible haircut that fucking dialogue and your hatred of the jj movies you're just wrong right over the place so uh, not an impressive set piece though yeah, the it's very still Holiday Inn-ish. You know, the whole mm-hmm. set is just, hey, look, here's some more Elkar's panels, and here's a big screen. Uh, it's not even as baller looking as the stellar cartography lab in Generations. You know, which is a couple movies ago at this right. point, right? So, yeah, yeah. If you're gonna be like, hey, we got this thing that's like that, like I saw the big budget Hollywood version, and now you're giving me a uh, community puppet theater. It's <laughs> a good way of putting it, uh, and. It's get used to being here, though. I'm gonna have a lot of a lot of scenes in the where next they three years. Cut their Borg nanoparticle space cocaine fairy dust. Is this like the the new Jack? This is basically so they wanted to give Seven of Nine a a like work set. You know, like Balana is in engineering. Tom's in a Tom's, prison somewhere. Yeah, Tom's in prison. Tuvok's By the getting way, his ass the, kicked. He has a prison sound queued up. I don't. That's gonna need to come in here a little later. <laughs> I'll I'll add it in. I got it. I got you. Um, Seven of Nine didn't have like a thing to do or a place to be, right? She's kind of like wandering around, Mm -hmm. possibly like throwing crew members against bulkheads and trying to simulate people. Posing, you know, having the camera pulled out so her ass can be fully on display. So (laughs) the... The, the purpose of this set is so that this is Barbie Malibu Mansion. Yes, this is where she works. This is her science area where she does Mm -hmm. some science. And so that's we're all over the sciencing will it's happen. A STEM playset. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. It's the it, yes. It is. It is Borg Barbie's STEM playset playhouse. I criticize the show because they're so far away from uh, Starfleet that they never get like new toys and new stuff, and the uniforms never change. So it is cool that they're doing something to grow 
the ship, put new technology in there, and just do something with that new season budget. There's an awkward moment where the Doctor tries to basically speechify. It's a nice callback to our conversations about like AI, rogue AI getting obsessive about things, mm-hmm. where he's like, oh, we're having a dedication for something, and I have this whole meticulous plan of all of these things it's I want to like, do. It's uh, like Detective Neelix's morning, good morning, morning show, show, yes. Where he wants... Yeah, that, that's a really good callback, actually. Uh, and I like how everybody stands around looking at him like, oh, the toaster's talking. <laughs> Look at the sim. He's <laughs> he's happy with his new swimming pool. <laughs> and he starts dragging out longer and longer. And uh, true. And I think this is the second time uh, almost in a row that Janeway's been saved from the doctor's preaching by a call from the bridge. Indeed. And it is a call because they're being attacked by a uh, pea shooter ship. Um, not even a yellow alert like the red alert situation on voyager is just mind-boggling like someone's attacking you does red alert only exist on the bridge i would think that you know there'd be red flashy lights everywhere and people would care but they they make a point though of, of demonstrating that these guys are so ineffective that voyager is just able to ignore them like can you stop i mean you don't want to stop we're just gonna go anyway we don't really care yeah, but could I mean could you could you stop? And it it frames everything so kind of like as as things go on because you know Janeway has that haughty uh, you know superiority kind of kind of tone in her voice. And... She deserves it because nine times out of ten, Voyager's the the small dog in the fight. And these guys they can call themselves the Kremen, and they look like anoraks from before, but they, they don't have very good technology are just kind of like prissy and like shooting at them because they're quote unquote violating their space. But even with taking no defensive precautions, they can't actually hurt Voyager in any way. And so Voyager just decides to just go. It's like, we're just going to leave. Yeah. See ya, buddy. And I think that uh, when we get to the point where things start to really pop off, which I think happens in the next scene, um, there's something I want to get into about how like the timeline shifting works because a complaint I think I had when the first time I watched it, but just recently when I was rewatching some of the scenes I kind of solved for myself was that later on they, they, there seems to be no addressing the idea that they should not have gone into Kremen space to begin with. But this being their first encounter in a, you know, in that version of the timeline, by the time things change, they were already in Kremen space so they weren't able to make that choice. And see, again, this is the kind of thing that normally in a, especially a Voyager time travel episode, I would want to really get in the weeds, but just the story works so well. And yeah. then it's like, there's enough people doing science on screen that I just buy that. This is a legitimate thing that's happening and, and it's going to happen. So uh, I, I do want to point out that when they get in their first encounter with the first Kremen patrol ship, it's uh it's a guy and he's acting like a complete dickhead, like you said, but we are going to see the actor, the captain of this ship, I think four, five, three times, three times. And every time he's portraying that character in a different light. And I thought that was really cool that he kind of becomes this measuring stick of the, uh, of the episode. Yeah. The first time they encounter him, he's like, I'm the Napoleon complex. Mm-hmm. The second time they encounter him, he's like grand Moff Tarkin. Yeah. Putting some D's and some A's. And that's actually what happens next, because... Uh, well, they, no, because they, they encounter the Zalkal yeah. first. So, we, we as the scenes go on through the episode, there is a day counter. 
in the bottom. Which to, I thought was cool. You know, represents the, the relative passage of time through this story. And so they're a few weeks into their journey through this part of space when they encountered the Zal, who Stevie called uh, apparently a race of Nicolas Cage, but it is an alien. Because if you look at the guy and you look at a still... Did you ever see Zoobly Zoo? No. What and is that? If anybody out there... It sounds like a kid's show. It was a kid's show. It sounds like a dad thing. Yeah. It was a kid's... No, well, it was a, when I was little, man. It was like uh, The Letter People and Zoobly Zoo. Those are like the two kid shows I really remember as a kid. <laughs> but there was like... It's a bunch of people dressed up as furries, essentially. I, <laughs> I'm sure some people out there... But it's very harmless. They're not like in cat suits yiffing each other. Um, if you don't know what that is, never Google it. Thank you. You know what? Look it up right now. <laughs> Look it up. Zoobly Zoo. Okay. There was one guy and I thought he really looked like... There you go. Zoobly Zoo. All right. Do the cast photos in there. Yeah, that guy oh, in the middle. Oh my god, yes, I remember this. <laughs> I fucking remember this. I remember that guy in the middle because I always thought he kind of looked like LeVar Burton because I was young and I didn't know that black people could look different. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's what that that Zell yeah, looks like. Yeah, it, it looks it looks like the cast of Cats, except like you know, eighties and yeah, eighties and eighties mall cats. Yeah, and a little bit more G rated. Yeah, the the the, the, the beaver old, guy. older beaver guy. Yeah, yeah. So many fetishes probably came from this. Yeah, you know, I think if you look back at early children's programming in the eighties and then you look around. Yes. And then you look around today. It's, it's impossible that we could have ended up anyway, but how we have every day we stray further from God's light. Look at that provocative pose. Yeah. What is, what what is (laughs) this presenting? Oh my God. What's that open flappy thing in front of her? Is that, Oh, she a kangaroo? It might be a vagina. What what is going on? Anyways. uh, So the (laughs) Zal L are super cool dudes. They, yeah, it's uh, very chill. He's like, "Hey, what's going on, your friend?" He's got he's got kind of that open shirt vibe. I got shades of the Eskevians from season one, but he's legit. Yeah, and, and I would say out of all of the alien races that we have ever encountered in Voyager, the Zal L are the nicest, most inviting. They're like, "Yeah, listen, uh, we know about the Kremen and that they're dickheads, but we fucked them up a couple of years. They used to be real big bads, but we beat the shit out of them." And uh, now they're a bunch of scrubs with big mouths. We're in charge. We like, hey, no, enough about us. Like, what's up with you? Like, just Voyager and a ship by out in the middle of nowhere trying to get home? Tell me about that. And Janeway's like, oh, cool. These guys are neat. <laughs> and then Praxis explodes somewhere. And the ring of, of shove you around is coming. So it, it's worth pointing out that the Kremen show up again. Oh. And oh, you're right. And, yeah, yeah. and the Zal ambassador comes with them, and they're like, "Get out of my space!" And the Zal ambassador's like, "I will package you up and send you home like a naughty school child." What the hell is wrong with you? And and Jane was like, "Please, I'm gonna I'm gonna just smooth all this over. I'm gonna like do some diplomacy." She's super feeling herself, and that's when they detect the this wave of of chroniton energy. Mm-hmm. And it's worth pointing out that in that scene. The Zal ambassador actually says, yeah, they had some like chroniton technology, but we managed to figure out a way around it and finally beat them. So they set up like that these Kremen fuck around with time. They do time shit. And there's a big time explosion and it passes through Voyager and it wipes out like Thanos snaps the, the Zell ambassador 
And the Kremen ship, which was this tiny pea shooter, suddenly morphs into this big bad warship. Yeah. And Voyager goes from good times cruising around not giving a fuck to there's a fucking body on the ground. Shit's starting to get fucked up. Some of the screens are flashing. Tuvok saying the shields are at 14%. And they finally get hailed. And it's the same fucking guy from before, except now I'm gonna simulate. I'm gonna simulate now for you now, Peter, in person, what it's like. So you're 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 Janeway. You're looking. Hold at on, the my hair is not bad enough. Hold on. Okay, so tell me, why are you in my space? You need to be playing with your fingernails more. Yeah. He just rolls around in his chair back and forth and back and forth it's in that way you're at. It's Grand Moff Tarkin shit. It's man. your at. It's that no Grand Moff Tarkin had more dignity. This is your asshole boss by <laughs> by by Grand Moff Tarkin. You know what I mean? Like that marionette, like like douchebag boss that everyone's had at one point in their life, mm. or is now. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's great because it's the same actor. He's in. It's the background's a little different, you know, his uniform's a little different, but he's holding himself like this huge aura of superiority and dismissiveness and basically says, hey, if you give up now, I won't execute you all. I'll just take your ship. Mm -hmm. And eventually they just warp away. Yeah, but they take some pretty heavy shots and uh, Tuvok mentions, I don't understand how, or someone mentions that they don't understand how these torpedoes i think it's the chroniton torpedoes are, yeah. are completely going through their shields and hitting the ship and and this is where the only real complaint that i can levy against this episode comes from mm -hmm. this episode by its very title owes its origin to the last good test story that we got which is before and after which is another amazing time travel episode yes this is where kess starts way in the future, not knowing what the fuck's going on, and begins moving, quantum leaping to earlier stages in her life and reliving what would become her future backwards. And specifically, in that episode, the fulcrum of her temporal experiences centers around Voyager's encounter with the Kremen in a period called the Year of Hell, where they get shot up by chroniton torpedoes. Where Janeway dies and Balana dies. Yeah. And all sorts of terrible stuff. Like the the DNA of this episode lays in another episode. And this is very, very rare. I mean, Voyager's gotten better with becoming self-referential and living in the universe that's created, but like this is unprecedented. This is something that's a callback from what season last this season. Last season, yeah. Um again, the, the title, Year of Hell, came from before and after. And at the end of that episode, there is this whole scene where Kess is happy to be back in her original body. They've fixed her quantum leaping problem. She's hanging out in uh, the Talaxian Jackoff Palace. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, she's telling everybody about her um, Wizard of Oz, like, and you were there, and you were there, and the Kremlin were there with their chromaton torpedoes at the phase variance of... 1.47 microns and that's what we needed and they're like well, why don't you just chill out and hang out with us and she's like no i think i'm gonna go write a report because if there's one thing i've learned it's that there's no time like the present no time like the present so i'm gonna write this report about all of this advanced knowledge and everybody's like hey yeah if you've got like 
don't tell us about our this was like our big argument like she completely spoils the the time space continuum talking about future events but they say listen don't tell us about what happens personally don't tell us that you fall in love with tom paris or that harry kim goes off to fuck a one-year-old because he totally does that (laughs) true uh but hey if you've got advanced technical knowledge on a foe that we know we are going to encounter with cheaty ass illegal uh you know uh sarin gas mustard bombs (laughs) photon torpedoes write this report up and file it this happens specifically in this episode Tubox says he wants to read the report. We jump forward to Year of Hell, which is named from that episode, with the Kremen from before and after, and the Chromaton Photon Torpedoes. And the same Micron, you know, like... Phase variants. Phase variants. This is all canon. This happened. Where's Kess's fucking report at? Why is it you know you're in Kremen space and everybody's like, oh, shit. We better change the shields up to 1.47, whatever, because we know from Kess's fucking reports when she took that one version of herself and went down, uh, you know, beta ray fucking gamma radiation hallway and cooked herself and died, that this is serious shit. Like, that is such a major oversight to me. It It's inexcusable. Yes. In my opinion. Yes. The, it's obviously they know that this was all referenced before. They stole even the slightest details down to how the fucking torpedo is lodged in a Jeffrey's tube and recreating that scene, except with seven of nine instead yes. of Kess. Yeah. It's like, they obviously know about this. This is like, and there isn't one line over two episodes where they address that Kess lived these experiences and left them information. That's how much they hate Jennifer Lee. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe the, the absence of this information. This is like Batman went back in time and went to Bruce Wayne and was like, listen, man, uh, someone's going to kill mom and dad and we're going to become <laughs> Batman. And he's like, oh, shit, that seems really crazy. And then jump forward uh, six months and Martha Wayne's like, hey, Bruce, you want to go to a play at uh, Skid Row Alley? And he's like, yes. <laughs> and then boom, boom. And he's like. God, what did I say I was going to name myself Batman? I'm going to be Batman. <laughs> you knew your parents were going to die. Why did you just not say, hey, listen, I'd really like to stay home and like listen to our record or whatever we do back in whenever Bruce Wayne was a young lad. It, But I don't care. <laughs> but I don't care. It's such a good episode that yeah, ultimately, while... the one nitpicky thing, which is a fucking Titanic booger to pick. It's very meme worthy. Like is, this episode is notorious for the fact that it seems to blank on its own major continuity moment. Uh, but the episode's good enough that I think the big takeaway is if you didn't watch that cast episode, you're not missing anything. You're like, probably going to be better, better, not off. better off as a person because before and after was a really good, yeah, great episode. But you'd be better off as a fan because you're not going to have what a, a five minute outburst about was <laughs> it. The fucking report she filed. Tom and, Paris was everywhere and in, in, <laughs> in threshold. He knows where Kremen's space is. Kess wrote a report on it. You, you shouldn't even be here. What? Whatever. 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 <laughs> whatever. Whatever. They're getting fucking rocked. Uh, speaking of being fucking rocked, uh, gold star to set designers for this episode. Oh man. Uh, as the where ep- did this budget come from? 
I, I assume that this they saved on uh, doing reuses or whatever. Like uh, the one before this was Scientific Method, which was uh, boring ass. Yeah, that just reused normal sets. That was a that was a budget saver. Raven used some. Raven had some had sets. sets. Revulsion was uh, was a lot of set heavy. That was one with um, aliens, chestburster dude, and then Nemesis, Nemesis was was soundstage. You know, like jungle soundstage. Day of Honor. Uh, I All mean, they really to do is ship the uh, the warp crowds. Maybe you save some money on Day of Honor and uh, what was a gift. I don't know. These the gift was the one where Cass uh, like it's, left. It's, it's early season. It was bad. I don't want to talk. Well. I can only assume that from here out that every scene is going to be in someone's actor trailer <laughs> for the money that they would have had to fucking. They do a great job dressing the sets into further and further decay as the episode goes on. Because essentially Voyager is slowly getting hot dick run all over it every time they encounter the Kremen and barely getting away. And it's just chipping away at the ship. And every time they cut back to the ship as the episode goes on, something more is fucked up. Some ceilings collapse. Yeah, and it it piles up. Like right now, it's damaged, and the next time we see him, it's it's definitely getting fucked up. Time after that, like fuck, the ceilings collapsing. The ceiling always collapses. There's always that one bar that always drops and kills someone. You know, I would have thought that after the first time, it killed half the crew on the bridge, including the EXO, and you know whatever other person when caretaker toss them they just get rid of this bar altogether it's a bad time bar this chin-up bar of hell <laughs> but what's impressive here is that they're actually like marking up the walls and breaking glass and normally you don't see them like start dealing with the outer cosmetics of of wall textures so yeah the interior shots look like hell and the ship model yeah the cg model of the ship as it goes on is all it gets more fucked up you see like torpedoes actually piercing the shields and hitting the hull and blowing pieces off i like when that one uh deck completely blows up and there's just like this deep ass i was wondering like how do you lose a deck and now i know it's just like this like a someone hit it with a fucking axe and there's this big gash and it stays that way for the rest of the episode I think one of the last shots we see in the episode when she's flying in on the final mission, like the entire like seven o'clock to eight o'clock portion of the saucer is just completely gone like a piece of pie that someone cut out. Yep. I mean, they great modeling work in CG and great set design, set dressing, you know, a lot of money spent to make this look good. It does look good. Um, So the story is that Voyager starts to get its ass kicked and what has happened is that Anorax has erased the Zal from space-time, from their homeworld. And we cut back to Anorax's ship, where his second-in-command yeah. comes in. He's super pumped. And Anorax is sitting there, and he's got a lock of hair in this sealed triangular container. It's phylacrity. And he comes in and is like, we finally did it. We finally restored the Kremen Empire. Like it's we we span five thousand worlds and two hundred sectors. Uh, you know we've reached a ninety eight point five percent restoration. Pretty good odds. And he he conveys like how impossible it has been for them to get this close. Yeah, they just they swished this one hard. Yeah, like nothing but net from like beyond half court range you never make this shot and they made it and 
it's clear he's like, okay, job's done. We're done. We did what we, this is as close as we're ever going to reasonably get. It's time to go home. And that's when you find out these guys have been doing it for 200 years. Yeah, so a byproduct of this ship is that it exists outside of time space, that the people on the ship do not age. Uh, there's no decay. The ship is pristine and they are in the same condition as they were when they entered whatever state this is 200 some years ago of Sausage Fest. Yeah, so I guess the idea is while life continues, it doesn't decay with time because time is not moving. Mm -hmm. So they exist, they live, they're not frozen. No. They have to eat, they have to do all these things, but decay that occurs as a consequence of time does not occur to them. And so they're all the same age, and the ship, as you said, doesn't seem to get older or wear out. And... Whatever happened, and they don't discuss what happened until later, uh, they've been at trying to fix it and restore the Kremlin Empire for two centuries. But there is apparently one colony that is easy to put together, is important to Anorak specifically, that Space Boddicker really needs this one to be back for a reason. (laughs) I do too. Uh, And it's got to obviously do with this fly reactory piece of hair, and he's told that is the one piece of the puzzle that this didn't is his, get slotted back in. This is his space madness. This is his personal uh, conflict of interest that removes all objectivity this guy has for what is categorically a huge success. And instead he says, uh, not good enough. And I really like the way he starts to rationalize it because instantly he gets called out on his bullshit. And he turns the table and says, listen, we can do this for as long as we want. We have to do this for as long as it takes to be successful because we have no excuse not to. We have all the time in the world and we are going to go over and over and over again until we have 100% everything back. And again, you've got that clear conflict of interest, but the math works out and there's no excuse. It's just being lazy. Uh, So his subordinate takes it on the chin and says, all right. And he says, begin the next round of preparations and uh, let's get working on this. Meanwhile, Voyager continues to get rocked by chroniton torpedoes. And it starts to have a lot of problems as it beats feet away from these, these fights. Eventually they end up blowing up a Kremen warship by like the, the next time we see them, like their weapons are out. They Every, got 11 torpedoes. Left. They got 11 torpedoes left. And they've got phasers are gone and they actually end up destroying this Kremen warship by deploying four torpedoes out like mines. And just Tom just like comes in real close and just floats them out there. Yeah. Even though she said that they were going to launch them out of the shuttle bay, they still shoot them out of the torpedo. It wasn't a, it, it's, I don't think that she said shuttle bay. She just said bay. Mm. So torpedo bay. Sure. All right. So you do see it though, like they have to open the torp. You see where the torpedo launchers are on the back of the ship, very clearly, and they open up, and these four torpedoes float out and blow up the ship. But what has happened is a massive power surge is occurring on deck five. Yeah, the EPS power grid, very fickle. And the doctor's got to lead everybody out, and they, uh, it's going to explode. The whole deck's going to explode. And this is probably the coolest battle damage thing until the very end, and. Uh, you know, there's a real traumatic moment for the doctor that he sees like two people coming down the hall, but they're not going to make it in time. So he's got to slam the door on them. Uh, but it explosively decompresses all along the saucer section of the ship. Basically, 
from the 12 o'clock position all the way to the 6 o'clock position. Like that half of the deck just boom, 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 and it just, it just blows off all of the the bulkheads and it's just this open gash on the ship. Really good uh, facial acting on Robert Picardo. You see the choice he has to make weigh very heavily on him. And again, you know, we are still talking about AI, very advanced AI, but one that's always been very glib about how how clinical he can go about things right uh, and it's it's not that anymore and it's certainly become personal and this was a hard decision for him to make and we'll get more of that later in the episode what the impact of watching those two people he basically left behind to die is going to have uh the immediate aftermath of this is that their attempts to create a temporal shielding have not yet been successful and then kremen whenever they encounter are basically having their way with them and there's not a lot of the ship left now uh like I said, this is where, like, initially I had some, like, why, why in the world are, you know, they continue to try and go through the space, but then I realized, you know, time and space are changing, so, you know, they never had an opportunity to make the right decision. Um, there's a conversation that Chakotay has with... My favorite conversation. Janeway, of, like, time to fucking it's get the fuck out of here. It's the second time we've had this conversation, and, again, I think I'm on Chakotay's side with this. I, I'm not to the extent that he says that they should abandon ship. Yeah, that didn't make sense to me. Like, I don't think you guys stand much of a chance in shuttle pods and fucking escape pods against these guys when your fucking state of the art starships pretty much against those guys or anything else in the Delta Quadrant, which has universally kicked your ass. Yeah, Uh, but he comes in and says, listen, we maybe want to think about staying the course is not working out too great for us. Let's examine plan B, which is hold down the left and right bumper buttons and escape last time we heard this was in scorpion part one where he's like listen dealing with the borg's a bad idea going into borg space is a bad idea let's go find a nice colony and hole up and lick our wounds and figure out what the next plan is going to be and i think had they shaped that into the same conversation which was like let's just get the fuck out of this space let's go the long way around uh let's keep in mind not the she who shall not be named cass did give us a fucking 10-year free boost. So even if it costs us three years of flying around this Krenum Imperium, we're still ahead seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like you said, he he shapes it in like, let's just scuttle the ship and send yeah. it. That was, that was stupid. And, yeah, that's, like, and, and that's my problem with this conversation. And it's like, I, I kind of had to find a solution to it myself of mm-hmm. because of the nature of how time and space changed you know, they were already in Kremen space by the time this happened to them and they had never had the opportunity to escape. So that's why the conversation doesn't make sense is because they were radically altered from, you know, like their relativistic position in space did not change. Everything else around them changed and they had to just suddenly deal with the consequences of that. I would say and arguably they, too, like... And they don't become aware of that until obviously the, the next, you know time there's a a shift here which we're going to see each time the time changes in some cases to the better where um the empire is doing better than it was before like even though you just flew into this thing 10 miles ago now the borders might have extended 20 miles behind you you. so so you're in deeper than you meant to be so that's uh that's not questions i was necessarily asking myself during it but I, i think those are pretty good thoughts to have during this so uh we have more scenes on voyager where 
they are dealing with the ship being blown to hell. I want to point out in that scene too, she has her teacup, her lucky teacup. Is that the same teacup from uh, when she thought she was going crazy? Shit. It kind of looks like it, doesn't yeah. it? Because like it looks like the sh- bodice ripper teacup. Yeah, like all the teacups are Federation Starfleet like stainless steel mugs, and then she's got that one from she's her bodice to... ripper. And yeah, I, I think I, they didn't say anything about it in the uh, in the memory alpha, but I, in my mind, that's what it is. I like it. I like it. I like she it. decided to replicate it. She liked it so much from her crazy dreams. Uh, the the next scene is is Bolana and Harry caught on a turbo lift. I kind of like this idea of like they were in the elevator and then the elevator blew it's up. It's disaster, one of my favorite episodes. And they're next fu- gen, and, they're... and that's actually disaster's uh, graphic. the The view of the turbo lift stuck in the shaft mm-hmm. was taken from uh, next gen disaster. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, Harry is trying to distract Bolana from her injury. Bolana's trying to distract the viewer from, from her, her pregnancy. pregnancy. <laughs> yep. Just, suddenly, all this all this action around the abdomen. Who knew? Yeah, huh. And uh, it's funny because one of the uh, trivia questions that Harry asks is, of course, relevant to what happened at the same time IRL. And there's they include, I would a essentially a continuity comic beat that makes no sense, but it's still funny. So what they do is that they're like uh, one person's challenging the other to name the thing they're referencing. And you just keep giving clues until they get it. And the le- le- less amount of clues you have to hear, the better you did. And they get to Harry trying to get uh, uh, to uh, name get Bolana to name the first warp ship, which we know is the Phoenix because of Star Trek First Contact. You are an engineer on a starship with a warp drive, the first warp drive vessel ever. And you're telling each other what what airplane did Amelia Earhart fly? I, I don't actually oh, know. I, you were there for 37. Enola Gay. Can you tell me what's It's not the Enola Gay. The Enola Gay is what bombed uh, Hiroshima. Um, yeah. Wow, I look really stupid. You do. And it, it's recorded, too. Yeah. So you're not going to be able to hide well, from Well, whatever. That. I'm not a fucking alien. <laughs> I live in Columbus, and I can tell you the three ships that Columbus sailed over. The, the idea that she wouldn't know yeah, what, the what, Phoenix, like the first warp drive... It would be Shit like not knowing the you know the right flyer or something like that, like mm-hmm. the birth of aviation. But I'm gonna have to look up what that was. <laughs> you know, okay, yeah, that just that 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 that's a plane. It just it blew up a city, and that's it what also that did. well, it was a it was Amelia Earhart flying it. Okay, <laughs> you and know what? After that, she got whisked off to the Delta Quadrant as a punishment. It's it's canon now. I mean, there were Japanese people there too. Hey, there you go. Yeah. We did it. High Tower too. Police Academy. <laughs> It's not high tower. It was a uh, tackleberry. It's a yeah. shared universe. <laughs> uh, the the comedy beat is seven of nine bails him out, opens the door, and answers the question. Is like, oh, you were talking about the phoenix, and then relays that you know she's aware of that information because the Borg were present for those events, and that it's difficult to explain how that's possible. Oh, you mean you know about good Borg stories and not just crappy Scorpion <laughs> Part One and Part Two? Wow. I will say though that. To reference earlier conversations about seven of nine, the right amount of her was used in this episode, I think, like over over the two. So the first thing I want to talk about is in addition to the set pieces and the ship itself looking more and more fucked up, everybody else is looking more and more fucked up. Janeway's hair, which already starts off terrible, gets continued. Terribly awesome. And uh, everybody's uniforms ripped and... You know, Neelix looks like he's working in a coal mine. Everybody's just covered in crap. Neelix in a uniform. 
working in a coal mine. So here's an interesting thing is that you can tell Neelix only gets to be a part of the crew in the worst of times. <laughs> this is the second time we've seen him because other time was before and after. Yeah. Which, po- post uh, year of year hell, hell yeah. casualties. Yeah. Uh, and I want to say there was another time we saw him. In, oh, uh, you know, Tuvix, which was a, a monstrosity <laughs> in itself. Um, but he only gets to. Anyways, everybody looks like complete shit. Just living in a, a terrible, miserable experience, not getting showers or anything, except for Space Barbie Doll 7 of 9, who beauty is irrelevant, comfort <laughs> is irrelevant, sex is irrelevant. What a nice personality is irrelevant. But apparently moisturizer is completely relevant. She is a 10 out of 10 still. I think yeah. maybe at the very end, she has like four pieces of hair that have been like <laughs> jostled free of her French bun and like some <laughs> smeared mascara on her cheek. But she looks the entire time. I Meanwhile, everybody else is looking like uh, they're, you know, chilling out with Riker on the Borg ravaged remnants of the D. <laughs> so that's some, some real continuity issue. I will say there. there's a, there's a scene where we actually get a, like, center shot of the heels that are part of her costume yeah i didn't i i mean i knew that they had heels because even like the, all the female officer shoes all have like no, some heels you always note it whenever she's on uh, jeffrey's two ladders which is pretty frequent so it shows off the butt but yeah i mean it's just i never know like, how big those heels really were on yeah. her costume it's like they're terrible it's uh, what they're doing but yeah she she looks great the whole time i want a sidebar real quick and again, we don't bring it in because it's such a big can of worms that you, you can't apply it to normal Trek episodes. But like when you've got something that is rewriting history on the fly, like these Krenum guys are like, what point does Q get involved? Can Q see the end of the story and knows that ultimately Janeway is going to kamikaze and reset everything and says, this is fine to play itself out. But I mean, there's been a few times that Q has been legitimately surprised, right? Even in his full godhood, things have happened that have surprised him, right? That's true, and I think it's I think it's worth talking about because you introduce a, a figure like Q into your continuity, can't walk it back, right? Like there's He's space there. gods out there, but I think they firmly establish that Q exists outside of space time as traditionally understood, that they can freely move forward and backwards through time yes into any place in the universe yeah and i would assume that anything that would breach the uh barriers so to speak that would be a serious problem they would deal with but they probably don't deal with things that they know because they have a total awareness of all of time and space gets solved and if we if we want to use the more charitable interpretation of the Q as particularly Q prime Q prime we'll call John Delancey uh, and his uh, our assumption that he is wanting humanity to go beyond their current limits maybe someday supplant the Q in the role that they have guardians in in the universe then why not allow Janeway to fix this little space-time issue on because, her Because, as you pointed out, ultimately it doesn't matter. She doesn't retain any of that knowledge and there's no real growth. But she proved that she could do it, and therefore humanity is capable of it. Mm-hmm. Even if they can't remember having done it. 
So they still get credit. Yes. Like, they can do this. We have now established that. Like, at the end of All Good Things, only Picard knows what happened. Yeah. He shares that information with everybody, but he's the only person who actually remembers. Even though everyone had to have been part of it to accomplish it. Well. Clearly it's something, a story they didn't want to tell at all, but it's still like, you start moving, because this is short of the Borg almost getting their ass kicked, I think this is probably the most meaningful, big impact thing that Voyager has been a part of. I agree. It, uh, I don't know. Uh, so, life's getting hard on the ship. Uh, they have uh, blueprints to try and make some shielding that'll deflect these chromaton uh, torpedoes, but they need the right frequency, which is the exact same issue they ran into during before and after this 1.47 microhertz microns microns so just as before as we had already referenced seven of nine instead of Kess is who comes across the torpedo this time and the torpedo is found by her she notifies tuvok hey i found this thing tuvok says all right wait for me i'm gonna get down there there's an interrogative scene between uh, that moment and the conclusion of that when we have the the payoff of the doctor's trauma over having basically let two members of the crew die because tom's really worried over balana doctor gets real short with Who, tom. thankfully we don't have to deal with any of the romance at all this, that's this like was, the closest you get is this scene and yeah. and it's the perfect amount it's tom being sweet on her yep it's her being prickly it's him being jokey and in the end they're both scared and happy to have each other there it's it it is the right amount. Just a sprinkling. Just a little salt. Mm-hmm. A little, little bit of Tom Bellana. Alright, we're done. Okay, yeah. we're moving on. But the Doctor is obviously very affected by the fact he had to let two of the crew die. And he's talking about it. Trying to... Ra- you can see him in a very human way. His intelligence trying to rationalize his choices. And be defensive. And otherwise kind of having these traits that go beyond what you would call a strict AI and more a sentient being. He busts Tom out for playing favorites and saying that Tom's being uh, emotional and it's clouding his judgment. And Tom throws it right back in his face and says that over the past couple of weeks, he has been very irritable and, and almost uh, hostile. And that's what yeah prompts him to say, I watch these people die. It's hard. I've had to rationalize it. I don't like what's happening, but here we are. And this is how life has to go because there's still people out there who need us. We cut back to the Jeffrey's tube where Seven and Tuvok are assessing the torpedo. And Tuvok says, yeah, uh, this is going to explode like right now. So we should go. I want to point out that in before and after, this thing was thrown off so much radiation that it was a death sentence for Kess to go in there. We've got Seven of Nine who's got her bio... Whatever, Borgness. Her Borg power. fairy dust. She's got her Nintendo Power Glove. Yeah. <laughs> And those high heels. I have plenty of shielding. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, but and, and Tuvok, you got Tuvok whose blood can get boiled and he's fine. I mean, he's very resilient. He's quite a bit of fortitude, that one. So an ageous about him. So, so <laughs> you did it. I did. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Seven wants to linger because she's trying to scan the frequency of the torpedo. Tuvok demands that she leaves. She stays anyway, and she gets it. Tuvok's like, you know, good job, but I, you know, next time you disobey an order. But before he can get that out, the torpedo explodes. And in the cheesiest move of all time, it's like this, like, backdraft level explosion. Like, 
when they say this torpedo is going to explode, I'm thinking like antimatter explosion, vaporize, everyone fucking dies. You know, like a photon torpedo exploding. Right, and they're right fucking there. They're Remember, right next to the fucking blew thing. Up the Enterprise D. Like they're right there. Yeah. And instead, it's just like this. Oh no, fire! Oh, firecracker accident. Oh, it's this awful. Tuvok was too close to the Roman candles. <laughs> the M80 got him. So it's apparently he like personally just like completely shielded seven of nine i guess that's what we're supposed to buy um and when we see them again uh tim russ does an able job of acting blind for the rest of the episode i first of all thought they were gonna kill him because if there's one thing in before and after we learn it's that the year of fire kills people so i the year of fire (laughs) well (laughs) it's the second time today i've done that uh year of hell kills year of hell kills people and uh in before and after it killed balana and janeway and i i figured in this one i was going to kill uh tuvok at the least but tuvok survives and i said all right well maybe he's gonna be in a wheelchair whatever instead he's blind and we come into him using a vulcan Razor? A fucking badass Vulcan Razor, It's like a Vulcan Mach 5. (laughs) It is. It is like, you know... Vulcan Schick sends a free one to every young Vulcan boy when he comes. You thought Gillette was the best a man can get? This is is nothing on a fucking Vulcan Razor. And his hand's all shaky, and we find out he's blind as a result. I think originally they're going to blow his leg off, but it's easier to have someone act blind than, you know, green screen out someone's leg. Uh, And... Seven of Nine has kind of become his his personal assistant. Yeah, they've, they've got a pretty good relationship going. I think it would have been awesome at this point if he was going to be blind for them to say, listen, we don't have the medical capabilities anymore to fix your eyes. So we had to break out one of those archaic asshole visors, <laughs> put him <laughs> in the Geordi LaForge headache machine. And that would have been fucking sweet because Tim Russ originally applied to be Jordi LaForge back in TNG and got passed on it. So it would have been his chance to wear the visor. And then you've got this old archaic piece of technology that they keep around in, you know, a first aid kit just in case someone goes blind. I, I think the idea of him being blind pays off well because it shows apparently uh, in the Federation in the 24th century they're very handy capable because the tactile interface on the tactical uh board works perfectly fine he's able to do his job up there Mm -hmm. no problem like i kind of like that like that's fine we'll adapt we'll overcome you know and he he has to like you know feel himself around some corridors and that sort of thing he's obviously like struggling at times not a good thing when half of the ship is on fire at any given moment um i think him being blind the primary goal there is to create a lingering sense of guilt over seven and nine which makes sense because they imply that by the fact that she has taken the personal responsibility of being his assistant, that she feels that guilt, but they don't dwell on it. Like there's no like weepy scene where she has overcome with emotion. It's just that I did this and therefore I will own the responsibility of assisting you from this point forward. I'll shave your balls. Right. Which I, I I like it. And props to the subtle kind of building a relationship that you see between them and the scenes that they have that they get to know each other and they demonstrate that. I think that one of the big shames of this episode, jumping to the end, which you've already talked about them hitting the reset switches out of all of the, what if stuff, like there's no character growth whatsoever for Kim. Yeah. Right. 
Blana and Tom are more or less the same. The doctor sees some shit and has some good character growth. Janeway just gets crazy. Um, but this relationship that develops between seven and nine and Tuvok is really great. And it's a shame that it doesn't stick around. And it's subtle because there's just like one scene later on where she's remarking that, you know, I know you better than X mm-hmm. and it's done in a very casual conversation sort of way that seems authentic to where these characters would be in their relationship with each other. Very uh, not emotional people, but have become familiar or even friends with each other. Um, but uh, they do finally develop the chronoton to por- torpedo defense. They have shields against their weapons. As a reward, Seven of Nine gets to continue to have the only working shower on the ship. Of course, still looking s- smashing as always. Ten out of ten. And with disaster with again. <laughs> and they ultimately uh, encounter the Kremen. They shoot at their torpedoes at them. They get the shields up just in time, um, specifically because. Uh, uh, Janeway like dives into a bunch of fire to turn on the main deflector to turn them on, mm-hmm. and fire suppression systems never work on Voyager, whether it's hobo trash can hobo fires, trash can fires on the best days or disaster part one. She has to grab like a Captain America shield off the floor and like sled her way through. Does that happen later? I feel like that might happen. No, later. it happens now because she goes in. No, it happens later from the asteroid thing oh yeah. yeah you're right yeah yeah so we're, we're spoiling that a little bit but um so they get the shields up it deflects the torpedoes but the most important thing is is that the shields go up and they're able to deflect those torpedoes at the same time that anorax is doing his next uh change to the time space continuum and i thought this was so cool so they they do another like change that creates this giant wave of space-time energy and at this point they're sitting at a 98 percent restoration right, right? so this is the best that they've ever accomplished they, and voyager is fighting the criminal empire at their peak and they fire this off there's this wave they remark like well whatever this is hopefully these time shields we built work because otherwise we're fucked it passes over them, and unlike the last time, there isn't like a wave and everything changes on Voyager. It just kind of passes through them and nothing changes. And instead, the Kremen around them suddenly become piddly, tiny little ships again. And then you remark on, like, wait a second, what the fuck just happened? And it's clear from the beginning, unlike the first time when Voyager was clearly changed by this change in the space-time continuum, this time they've observed it objectively. And the Kremen have become weak. And I'm back on the ship... They talk about like some variable out there has some sort of presence in the time space continuum and has thrown off all of our calculations. Everything's screwed. And now the Kremen are a pre-warp society and are nothing. Do they tie astrometrics into this? Uh, they do after the scene where they talk about <laughs> okay. what just so happened. Like, yeah. It really seems like with them unveiling this new set piece, that should have been like the linchpin of like triangulating where this comes from. And then uh, that's what they do right after this. Yeah. There's a line that comes up through this as they figure out that there's time fuckery going on. Uh, it's Janeway and it's seven and nine. They're chilling out in astrometrics. Yeah. And yeah. Janeway's like, what if someone is changing the timeline? And this is what we're seeing as a result. And then uh, seven and nine's like, blah, blah, blah. And then Janeway lays this one down like, oh, I hate time travel. My goal in life is to avoid time travel. And I'm just like, 
Well, you are clearly not the Catherine Janeway from the first two seasons of Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> first, first I four episodes you, of Star Trek I thought Trek you Voyager. just got a new haircut, but you're actually an alternate reality, Janeway. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, lady, all you do is apparently fuck around with time. Like, you went back to 90s LA. Yeah. We were there. You ran to Sarah Silverman. It was terrible. You flew the fucking Voyager. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> ran into a time hobo. That that line there was right up with uh, Harry. Like, why would people hate Voyager? Because you guys fuck around with everybody's shit. <laughs> And you're meddlers. If she had said instead, I hate, like, I hate time travel, despite how many times I seem to run face first into it, I can never understand it. Like, Mm -hmm. some moment of self-referential of, like, why does this keep happening to me Mm -hmm. would have been so much better than, oh, I try to avoid it. Like, apparently not. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Fucking ever. Yeah. But they put together that something is fucking is fucky with time space that's a good <laughs> that's the federation term we've reached uh fucky <laughs> we fuckiness well, let, me, let me check this gauge here sir we're past cool oh yeah no we're we're deep into the fucky here <laughs> and uh kremen uh the kremen ship the anorax's ship has detected that voyager for some reason has this they knew what voyager was they had it like marked as this inert object it would be a doesn't have a time space uh, signature would not affect calculations. Well, now it has. And I thought it was so cool that they demonstrate through this, how delicate all of their calculations are that like Voyager being protected from the wave just threw everything off so completely that it fucked up the whole 98% and now they're back to zero. Is that what you, how you took that? Yeah. That they, they create, it's, it's like a, a really complex math problem, right? And you're solving for all the variables, but there's a variable now that gets entered in that changes the entire equation and makes your answer wrong. I took it, again, they were saying it at 98% restoration, which is a big win. And then because his wife's colony was not restored and he forced this retry and they dropped down to what, 58 or something? No, even less. Like, that, they get back to 55% later. So let's say they drop it down to 30. I thought he was deflecting responsibility of the massive mistake he just made onto Voyager. I'm saying that, like, Voyager was responsible for the mistake. Like, the idea of all of this stuff being so complex and so difficult to do hmm. that this change into my understanding of the variables makes all of the answers wrong and cast, creates this cascade failure that creates this unintended consequences. That's the interpretation I took from it. And I thought that was really cool. The way that they portrayed that, like Mm. this fucked everything up so bad that it re undid all the good they had done so far. And so, uh, Anorex shows up and starts to try and he talks to the ship to like, I know what you are. Like I'm aware, like been around for two centuries, blah, 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 you know, and essentially admits like I'm the one that's changing space time Mm. and, I, you know, I'm just trying to get home. I know you're trying to get home, but I bear you no ill will. I don't, don't. Hey, I got no beef, but your existence is preventing me from being able to complete my mission. So we're wrapping this up and essentially tries to erase Voyager from space time. Well, they steal uh, Tom and Chakotay first. Yeah, they, they decide to beam over a sample to crew members and surprise. This is now a prison break. <laughs> it's not just a prison break. Time prison break. It's not just a time prison break. 
Okay. What's what's worse than a time it's, prison break for a voyage? It's a time prison break mating that, ritual that features well, the return break. of of the character that you yourself named just a few weeks ago. Coopte. Yes, it does. <laughs> I want to show you my notes. What's the circle there? It is Coopte. Lickety fucking split. So, uh, Tom and and uh, Chakotay get beamed over to try to race him from space time. Uh, Tuvok uh, tells the captain, "Like uh, that ship's so big, I can't go past war- warp six. If we just go past warp six, we can get away." And Harry's like, "Our ship is so fucked. If you go to warp, we're gonna start like losing parts." And 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 uh, Janeway's like, "Don't care. We got to get out of here because otherwise we won't exist in space and time." And so they warp away, and you like literally see like the bulkheads getting stripped away as they warp, you know, try to to get to outpace the ship. But they get away. So this is where the first episode ends. Um, they don't really show you what happens with with Tom and Chakotay directly. They just show that. Uh, Janeway basically makes all of the surviving members of the crew fuck off into escape pods because Voyager's so fucked it can't possibly yeah, ever survive. Yeah, there's like a little uh, we're going away speech and we're going to meet up later, which is a real dick move because in the end she kamikazes the show with <laughs> these fucking dudes. Yeah, like... Uh, she I, rolls the hard six there, man. That's a, I don't... It doesn't make much sense to do this but they're doing it to raise the stakes. Budget's before. too high with all these set changes. We don't have the money to afford <laughs> all you extra actors, so we need to get you out of here. And instead of killing everybody, we're just going to show people what life pods look like. So get out of here so we can bring the painters in and put some more shit up on the walls. 